0: There were three ravens sat on a tree Down, a down, hey, down, a down They were as black as they might be with a down One of them said to his mate Where shall we upwreck? Welcome to a bonus episode of the three Ravens podcast. We're on a break at the moment, researching and writing our third series, which will launch in December to fill the gap. This is one of three little compilation episodes containing three stories from across our first and second series. Don't know about you, but feels like it's high time for some smooching, so let's get to it. Now, we've entitled this episode Three Kisses because it contains three of our more romantic tales, including our Surrey story, the tale of Blanche Harriet; our Northumberland story, The Fish and the Ring, and our Worcestershire story, The Legend of the Swan. If you're interested in supporting the podcast and would like access to all of our episodes ad-free as well as loads of additional content like monthly exclusive episodes, episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, our newsletters, Stories as text versions and more, then sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. And for our archive of all past episodes and expanded information for each episode, as well as our shop full of Three Ravens merch, please visit our website at three ravenspodcast.com. We'll be back next week with our second listener episode, which we're really excited about. But in the meanwhile, we'll start spinning our yarns right after this
1: they say that time itself can't be altered and maybe that's true but as for the clock which tells the time well that's another story in chertsey there once lived a young woman whose name was blanche Harriet. the meaning of blanche is white and i can't say that it was a name which suited her for she had flaming red hair and courage to match it, and passion which burned like a beacon. Whatever she did, she did with all the force of her being, so it made perfect sense that when she fell in love, she did it in a fierce, all-encompassing manner. Her lover's name was Neville Audley, and he was every bit as fiery and feisty as Blanche. They were a well-matched pair indeed, and everybody had been saying that they should wed for as long as living memory. Blanche and Neville themselves rather accepted their marriage as a done deal too, and in truth, their passionate natures meant that they had already consummated their betrothal under the light of a brilliant red harvest moon. They sneaked home at dawn, long after the curfew bell had sent less bold folk to their beds. Luckily, their families weren't at all opposed, and all were more or less primed for the happy day whenever the couple should choose to name it. Blanche's mother had a dowry chest full of lavender-scented linen for her, and Neville's father had a fat purse of money for him. They'd even discussed where they might live, in an old weaver's house in the nicer part of town which was then for sale. Everything pointed towards Blanche and Neville living a long and happy life together, full of kisses, quarrels, and a tumbling brood of carrot-haired children. That was until everything changed a great contention broke out between the two noble houses of York and Lancaster. Now, when contentions broke out in Chertsey, they were usually over something insulting said at a family gathering or a borrowed bucket which had mysteriously never been returned. But the houses of York and Lancaster were quarrelling about something much less tangible than a missing bucket, the right to sit on the throne of England. Of course, these noble houses couldn't keep their disagreements to themselves, they needed armies, and so they needed to bring the people into their arguments. They brought in plenty of men from Chertsey, with swords and bill hooks to make a point, and Neville Audley was among them. I've said that Blanche's name didn't suit her, and the colour white didn't suit her lover either, for he fought under the red-rose banner of the House of Lancaster, red as his love's hair and red as blood. Neville was eager to go but Blanche made him promise that he'd ride back to her in one piece. He was practising his sword play and his very horse was stamping impatiently, for he suited his master in temperament and was keen to be galloping into battle alongside his brethren, hooves churning up the mud and eyes rolling back to strike fear into the hearts of the enemy. Off they rode, and that was the last anybody in Chertsey saw of either horse or man for a good long while. Well, Blanche was just worried sick about Neville in her heart, though she never mentioned it out loud, everybody who met her thought she was even more lively than usual, quick to laugh and bold with a comeback. Of course, those who knew her a bit better saw that her hot temper was quicker to flare up than it had been before, and plenty of her friends were on the receiving end of her too sharp tongue. When they gossiped among themselves, they said that Blanche was missing Neville more than she could bear and it was quite true, she was. Every evening she lit a candle in her window and burned some fragrant herbs in its flame and she said a prayer to the Virgin Mary to bring Neville back safe and whole. Then she gazed in the direction she imagined him to be and sighed in a way she would have partly mocked if anyone else had been doing it. Neville was not fighting in the direction Blanche gazed but in quite the opposite one and the battles he was fighting in were all opposite too, For Everything seemed topsy-turvy. Although the Lancastrians threw themselves into the war with all the enthusiasm and conviction of their Red Rose standard, they were losing badly. That wasn't Neville's fault at all, for he fought ferociously, whirling like a dancer with his bastard sword swinging as fast as light. He was like a smouldering coal in the hottest part of the battle, and he killed many men. So much so that he became known as the Scourge of the Yorkists, and the House of Lancaster praised him as a hero, despite the oncoming tide of success for the House of York. That tide came in at last, however. Edward, son of Henry VI, was crowned king of all England. The Lancastrians kept fighting back, but it was really to little avail. At last, the two sides met at Hexham in as bloody a conflict as the whole war had ever seen. Neville Audley acquitted himself well, sending many a Yorkist foe to the grave. He became separated from his fellows at a misty edge of the field, where he came upon a man in the enemy colours with the white rose badge on his chest. (laughs) Neville saw an opportunity, until he realised that the man was unarmed and was kneeling to attend to the lame hoof of his horse. Rather than stab him in the back without honour, Neville sheathed his bastard sword. The man turned and saw this act of charity, and he called down God's blessings on Neville's head. They exchanged words for a moment, with the strange camaraderie of foes, where for that short space of time they were just two men, and neither could remember what they were really fighting for. Well, it transpired that the man was one of King Edward's friends, and he knew the way the war was likely to go, so he slipped a garnet ring from his finger and gave it to Neville as a token of thanks for sparing him he so easily might have killed him. Neville put the ring onto his own finger, next to his love token from Blanche, and they wished each other well. Ultimately, the House of Lancaster was crushed, of course, and Neville was forced to flee. England was no safe harbour for him anymore, what with the price on his head from having killed so many of the House of York's finest men. He knew he must flee to the continent to seek refuge in France, where they were sympathetic to the Lancastrian cause. It would be dangerous, terribly dangerous, for Yorkist soldiers were out searching for him. But Neville knew he must see his love Blanche if he could, and persuade her to come with him to France and start a new life. He was sure that their families would understand. Both Neville and Blanche spoke abominable French, but that wasn't the sort of thing he paused to consider. It was hard for him, travelling back to the county of his birth with men hunting for Lancastrian rebels. He travelled by night, and when he reached Rygate there was a fierce chase through the town, and Neville had to hide in the old baron's tunnels to evade his pursuers. But at last he made it back to Chertsey, and rode as fast as he could to Blanche's home as night clouded the sky. She was gazing out of her window in the wrong direction when she heard the hoofbeats of Neville's horse. She jumped up and ran down to him in her nightdress, and oh, they were glad to see each other. Such kisses and embraces and words, half angry and half loving, were exchanged. Stories of the war tumbled out of Neville, and he showed Blanche the garnet ring and told her about the man whose life he'd spared. But then Neville mentioned that they needed to leave for France as soon as ever they could. Blanche, being as impulsive as she was, was all for it, and... Would have even jumped up before him on his horse without pausing for clothes or money or even a piece of cheese to eat. That was when Blanche's garden was surrounded by soldiers. There were four of them and their dog barking furiously and they all drew their swords on Neville. The fight which ensued was furious and farcical both together with the dog chasing Neville round the sundial while he hacked at the soldiers Blanche climbed the apple tree and threw the hard, unripe fruit down at the soldiers' helmeted heads. Well, the scuffle stopped when the soldiers managed to overpower Neville, but two of them were wounded badly, and the dog lay dead in the raspberry bushes. Blanche screamed and railed and called the soldiers all manner of terrible names, but they read a proclamation for Neville's capture and told him that he was sentenced to die at curfew the very next day. And then they took him away. Some girls would have cried or fainted, but Blanche wasn't much of one for either of those things. She'd tried them, of course, the same as anybody, but she'd found they rarely did her much good, so weren't worth bothering with. Instead, she walked up and down by the light of the moon, brushing her fingers against the sharp-smelling rosemary, and she thought. By the time Dawn had painted the sky pink, Blanche was fully dressed, and she had a plan. Now the Herriots had a friend, Herrick Evenden, who visited them every few days. He was an amiable young man with no romantic interest whatever in Blanche, which was a profound relief to both of them and allowed them to be very good friends. When Herrick rode up to the Herriot house with a feather in his hat bobbing jauntily, Blanche met him in the garden and asked him if he had any plans for the day. Nothing firm, said Herrick, who had been planning to see if she wanted to take a picnic into the forest or go boating. Well, said Blanche, would he mind very much going to the town jail and seeing Neville, who'd been arrested and was going to be executed, and getting from him a certain garnet ring? Herrick was very much astonished to hear that Neville had been sentenced to death so soon after arriving home, that he recognised the determined look in Blanche's eyes which told him to shut his mouth and keep listening. And when he'd done that, Blanche continued... Would he mind terribly taking the ferry to London as fast as he could and showing the ring to the new king to get his pardon for Neville? Although this sounded like a near impossible task to Herrick, who'd never met a king and would have been quite happy spending all his days not meeting one, or indeed drawing any undue attention to himself, he found himself being firmly propelled by the shoulders towards his horse, and Blanche pressing a bundle of bread and wine into his hands for the journey, she said, and before he knew it, he was carrying out her madcap scheme, just as he always did. Well, the day drew on, and Blanche waited and waited. The sun travelled across the sky until it was high and hot, and still no word came from Herrick or Neville. Blanche walked into the town and pretended to be shopping, while keeping an eye on the jail for any activity. But there was nothing. London was not so very far, especially using the ferry... But Blanche worried, as she'd never worried in her life, that Herrick would never make it back before the curfew bell. What if the king was away, or wouldn't see him? What if? What if? The sun continued its journey until it was late in the afternoon, and Blanche began to be truly anxious. One of the soldiers outside the town jail was sharpening his sword, and Blanche began to fear that its keen edge would bite through Neville's neck if Herrick didn't come soon. She waited on the path towards Laleham, where she'd see the ferry as soon as it came, and spoke sharply to anyone who greeted her. The sun plunged below the edge of the horizon. At last, a long, painful time later, Blanche glimpsed the ferry in the distance. She couldn't tell if Herrick was on it or not, but she realised with horror that now the light had gone from the sky, the curfew bell would be rung. Even if Herrick were on the ferry, it was half a mile's walk from the landing, and he would be too late. Blanche had to take matters into her own hands. Lifting up her skirt, she ran as fast as she could to the church at Chertsey Abbey. The bell tower was one of the older designs with a separate door into the bell loft. Blanche wrenched it open and began to climb the ladder to the loft. It was dark and cobwebby and stank of bat leavings, but she climbed on. When she reached the loft, she could see the great bell hanging in the darkness with its inscription to the Virgin Mary. There was a narrow balcony around the long drop to the ground below. Without pausing to think, Blanche launched herself at the bell, taking a huge leap and caught hold of the clapper. She swung there, muscles burning and screaming, but she knew she had silenced the bell. Well, when the bell ringers came to do their duty, they reached for the rope and tugged on it as usual but no sound peeled forth from the church tower. "'Something wrong with the bell,' said one. "'A bad workman blames his tools,' said the other. "'Pull harder!' And so pull harder they did, and poor Blanche was dashed against the sides of the bell and the wooden frame around it and bruised terribly. But still she clung on, silencing that dreadful death knell with her own body. Her red hair streamed behind her as she swung, and still the bell made no sound. Down below, the bell ringers paused in their attempts and went to interrupt the sexton in his prayers to ask his opinion. The sexton, a dramatic sort of person, immediately assumed the worst and that the tower was haunted by malevolent ghosts. Armed with candle and Bible, he began the ascent to the bell tower to exorcise the spirits. This was somewhat slow and ponderous, as he had to keep changing hands with the candle and the Bible. The bell ringers followed behind him, offering encouragement here and there. Although the bell was no longer being rung, Blanche clung on regardless, just in case anybody were to try ringing it again and the soldiers at the jail to take it for a sign to execute Neville. Her arms were begging her to let go, but Blanche told herself she must cling on a little longer, if it would prevent Neville's head from rolling on the Abbey Mead. Well, when the sexton found Blanche, he was astonished, and was all for exercising her anyway, until one of the bell ringers recognised her. Blanche explained herself, and the ringers were so sorry for her plight that they vowed they wouldn't ring the bells again today, not even if the new king paid them ten guineas himself and offered them a title. They helped Blanche climb down from the clapper, where she promptly collapsed in a heap, "'like a quivering aspic pudding. "'Well, you can probably imagine how the rest turned out. "'Herrick got off the ferry with the king's pardon, "'and Neville was released with a hearty handshake and an apology, "'and he apologised in turn and vowed to buy a new dog "'to make up for the one he'd killed in the fury of his capture. "'When Blanche regained her strength, "'she climbed back down the bell tower and was reunited with her lover. "'They feasted and they danced.' And if I wasn't sitting here telling you this story, I'd still be enjoying their hospitality, celebrating their wedding and the bravery of Blanche Harriet of Chertsey. Their legend goes on, and there's a statue of her clinging to the bell in Chertsey Abbey grounds to this very day, even though Blanche, Neville and the old bell have all passed over into the record of time.
0: It's no secret that the reign of Queen Elizabeth I was a time of magic. And though the list of spellcasters, mavens and alchemists of that age is long, none of them were as wealthy or powerful as Henry Percy. The 9th Earl of Northumberland, Percy, had gold enough without changing it from base metals. He was the head of the School of Knight, which met at Scion House in London, a group which had amongst its members over time Dr. John Dee, Christopher Marlowe, George Chapman, Sir Walter Raleigh, and John Donne. Indeed, when John Donne married Anne Moore, resigning himself to a life of penury, it was Percy who carried the letter announcing the new news to her father. Many know of Percy's imprisonment in the Tower of London, tried in Star Chamber for involvement in the gunpowder plot, though today we know, just as they did then, there was no evidence of his involvement. Still, the Tower was a familiar setting for the Percys, for Henry's father had been imprisoned there three times for aiding Mary, Queen of Scots, and died there, shot in the heart at the orders of the vice-chamberlain, a murder announced to the public as a suicide. This was in contrast to his grandfather, Thomas, who was hanged, drawn and courted at Tyburn for his rebellion during the Pilgrimage of Grace, and to his uncle, who had loved Anne Boleyn and been the one who, as a juror at her trial, collapsed when the verdict was passed, dying of a broken heart. Still, from their seat at Olnwick Castle, a little inland from the North Sea, the Earls of Northumberland were always some of the richest men in England. As such, the wizard earl, Henry Percy, took his 16 years of imprisonment in his stride. Attended by 20 servants in the Martin Tower, which he had lavishly decorated and furnished with one of the finest libraries of the age, he continued to meet Thomas Harriet, Walter Warner and Robert Hughes, men known as Northumberland's three magi, right up until they died and he was freed. It was his magi who did his bidding beyond the prison walls, for Percy was a furious man, vindictive and preoccupied with matters of blood. A descendant of the brave knight Henry Hotspur, he came from a long line of rebels resistant to the crown. In his mind, his children should only marry amongst the most powerful and noble families in the land. For this reason, he kept his daughter, Lucy, imprisoned with him at the Tower to prevent her marriage to James Hay, the Earl of Carlisle. Percy said he would not have Lucy dance to a Scottish jig But for all Percy's power and cunning, she escaped, aided by the Earl and Countess of Somerset, marrying Hay, who, in turn, actually fought for Percy's release. When he was finally freed, due to his son-in-law's endeavours, the wizard Earl was deaf and almost blind, and he never recovered his strength. He died at Petworth House in 1632, too weak to journey back to Olmwick Castle, recently restored to his only son and heir. And on his deathbed, the wizard earl muttered wildly of his greatest regret, of his battle with fate, which drove a wedge between himself and his only son, Algernon. The matter of their great feud began when Algernon was but a newborn. In those dark days at the end of the Nine Years' War, months before the Queen died and his ally, Raleigh, was imprisoned for treason, Henry Percy drew a thimble of Algernon's infant blood. He sat alone before his obsidian mirror, burned the blood and summoned angels to the showstone. They told him news he did not want to hear. His line would soon be ending. It would be Algernon's fate to marry a girl named Anne, a woman of inferior blood who would bear him only daughters. For Henry Percy, such a fate for his son would be unthinkable. And so, with iron determination, Percy set about controlling Algernon's life from daybreak to sunset, his every hour prescribed, his every movement monitored. "'Simultaneously, Percy set to seeking for Anne, "'sending his men to scour Northumberland. "'And though it took him some weeks, "'he found her, the girl unto whom his son was betrothed by destiny. "'She was the daughter of a lowly fisherman "'living on the banks of Devil's Water. "'He knew her on sight, having seen her in the obsidian mirror, "'though she was then still but a wordless babe, "'dabbling at the edge of that fast-flowing brook. She was a dark-haired creature with snow-pale skin and fay-like eyes of greyish-green. He approached the lowly fisherman and reached for his coin purse, retrieving three gold pieces and offering them as payment. The fisherman, though flushed with shame, accepted this sudden fortune and sold Anne to Henry Percy. The fisherman presumed she would now live in Alnwick Castle and be raised as a lady, yet the wizard earl had other plans. Percy placed the child before him on his horse and rode to Corbridge. There, he took the smiling babe in his arms, stood high on the bridge above the River Tyne and dropped her into the black green water. His quest accomplished and fate defied, Percy rode back to Olnwick and continued Algernon's instruction. Since the boy's mother had been executed in 1601 after allegations of treason, Henry was free to ignore the will of her side of the family, the meddling Devereaux, With other business to attend to in London, Henry therefore appointed the accomplished tutor, alchemist and natural philosopher Edward Dowes to raise his son, proceeding south at his earliest convenience. His parting gift to his son was a ring made of pure gold, inlaid with the symbol of the House of Percy, a lion rampant carved from the bluest lapis lazuli, the band inscribed with the family motto, Esperance en Dieu, Hope in God. Only Anne had not drowned in the river where the wizard earl had dropped her. Instead, as if rescued by forces beyond sight or knowing, her frail body tumbled downstream and was discovered, by chance, by Henry Neville, the Baron of Bergaveni. Neville, out hunting with his men in the forest of Kildare, was astounded to find a child emerging from the river's foam, not least one he thought so beautiful, so intriguing and so strange. He considered it as an omen and took her with him to meet with his friend and the wisest man he knew, Sir Robert Cecil. Cecil, a hunchback known for years as the Queen's Pygmy, had long been spymaster to the Crown. Once protégé to Francis Walsingham, Cecil had inherited his father's interest in the occult, including his rafts of letters from Edward Kelly, and he remained a patron of the secretive alchemical alliance known as the Society of the New Art. Though Cecil held little stock in the transmutational experiments of William Medley, he was a great friend of Robert Flood, who he had inspect the girl to learn more of her mysterious lineage. It was many years until Anne appeared again in public, though when she did, it was as Lady Anne Cecil, daughter of King James' most trusted advisor. By then, Cecil was known as the King's Little Beagle, having long since reveled in the success of the Treaty of London, where he'd hired the playwright William Shakespeare and his actors to serve as diplomats to the Spanish delegation. A member of the Order of the Garter, discoverer of the gunpowder plot, Cecil had since swept the board clean of his old enemies, one amongst them being Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. Since the wizard earl's arrest, he had, for long spells, ensured that Algernon was imprisoned alongside him. They were not lacking in amusement for... Percy's prison included a bowling alley, tennis courts, and he would watch Algernon at fencing, having the boy taught from ancient books with the same seemingly ageless tutor Edward Dowse, never far off. Yet Percy knew that Algernon should have a fine marriage match, and so, under Dowse's watchful eye, with his three magi, Harriet, Warner, and Hughes observing from the shadows, Algernon attended social occasions with members of King James's court. A student at Cambridge, attending St John's, where his father had gone before him, he was known as a man of great fortune, which is why, when Sir Robert Cecil presented to him his daughter during a masque at the recently completed Hatfield House, none present thought it in any way untoward. Cecil said to Algernon, "'I'm told, Your Lordship, that, like your father, you are adept at reading horoscopes. Please,' Commit an old man's folly and be so kind as to read my daughters. This Algernon did, and no sooner had he begun that arcane process than a strange set of coincidences emerged. He read in the stars, in her bloods, in the great many almanacs and books he'd studied so well, copies of which stood in Cecil's own library, that the fate of this girl and his own were inextricably entwined. "'It is as I thought,' Cecil declared with a wry smile. "'This child, the apple of my eye, is to be yours, as decreed by the heavens themselves.'" Douse, who knew no better, thought Anne a fine match for his ward, not least as the dark-haired beauty was the daughter of the Lord Protector. No sooner had Algernon given his golden ring to Anne, bearing his family's crest and motto, than Dowse had written to his master, appealing for the stars to be studied and the date set for the pair to be wed. The intended union was a cause for celebration, and all the great families present bore witness to the ring on Anne's finger. Somerset, Hartford. Arundel, Pembroke, and Shrewsbury all saw it, and all thought Algernon well matched. Rather than pleased, of course, from his position in the Tower of London, Henry Percy was furious. He knew nothing of Anne's true identity, but it was Cecil who had seen him tried and imprisoned. Cecil who had routed the School of Night, replacing them in the Crown's esteem with the Society of the New Art. And so, Percy dispatched Harriet, Warner, and Hughes, setting them on a secret quest to prevent the marriage, whatever the cost. While simple murder was considered and favoured by Harriet, Northumberland's magi were far from fools. Each a learned academic, they discussed the merits of curses, poisons and spells, but Warner knew that Cecil was a man whose homes were all defended against the dark arts. Cecil's allies included skilled natural philosophers like Nicholas Culpepper and Peter Coles, as well as great minds and thinkers such as William Byrd and Orlando Gibbons, who wove spells into music which echoed through Cecil's halls, banishing shadows in any dark forces within them. Sat amid all this protection like a fairy at the centre of a hoard of gold was Anne, the dark-haired daughter so unlike Francis and Catherine Cecil, both of whom were years older with hair like golden wheat. As such, the Magi turned to simpler means. During a madrigal at Arundel Castle, Hughes approached Anne Cecil and, with a deft touch, slipped from her finger the Percy family ring, for the Magi knew that without the ring Anne would never again appear before Algernon. Its loss would be so shaming and such a dishonour that the marriage would be cancelled by default. Thinking themselves wise to dispose of the evidence in the most thorough manner possible, the Magite rode all the way up to Northumberland, where the ring began its life. At Bamba Castle, they conducted an unholy rite, commanding the ring to only return to the rightful heir of the House of Percy. Then they tossed the ring into the sea, rode south once more, and considered the matter settled. Algernon was, of course, heartbroken. His father continued to attempt to control him, but Algernon was wilder now, a child of passion, just like his forefathers of old. He studied law at Middle Temple, but... So close to the court, with Anne always kept from him and away from all eyes at the time, he felt he had no other choice than to go abroad. So it was that for six years, Algernon toured Europe, always in the company of Edward Dowse. He travelled first to Italy, then back through France and the Dutch Republic, ever seeking a beauty to rival the woman whose face he saw in his dreams. His star wife, his bride of fate. Anne, the only one for him. In the meantime, Cecil died, and Anne became the ward of his son, William. Much older than she, William Cecil assumed the role of her father, yet he was unnerved. Though he grew older, his hair threaded with grey Anne did not, her pale skin and raven hair and twinkling eyes appearing alike to him as when his father had first introduced them so many years ago. The wizard earl? Henry Percy was then freed from prison in 1621, by which time he was but a shadow of his former self. Abandoned by his magi and banned by the crown from returning to Alnwick. he took shelter at the Bath Inn, as recently renovated by Inigo Jones. Sickly and bitter, though living in luxury, he tried to restore relations with Algernon, who returned to England three years later, but the rift between them, was wider than it had ever been. Edward Dowse died, and now despondent and alone, Algernon was elected to Parliament. He represented first Sussex, then Chichester, but he'd become a bitter man still handsome with flowing auburn hair by the time he entered the house of lords he had grown frenzied with his fury towards the new king and his allies attempts were made to placate him and he was appointed lord lieutenant of cumberland westmoreland and northumberland but at every opportunity algernon chose to pick at the scab on england's heart the target of his ire was George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, favourite to the new king, Charles I, who he embarrassed and belittled and enraged. Word then came to Algernon in the autumn of 1628 that his father was finally dying. Out of pity and at the behest of the Duke of Somerset, Algernon met once again with the wizard Earl, the man whose tyrannical treatment had made his childhood so bitter a date was set for the pair to dine together and at the bath Inn with the duke of somerset also present they ate their talk was light and airy of matters of no consequence all parties fearing a slip of the tongue which could explode into violence The wizard earl, almost blind, racked with fits of coughing, tried to pour honeyed words into his son's ears, but Algernon was resistant. Indeed, it was not words that did for their relationship, but a dish served on a silver platter. It was one of many served to those present, but on that salver lay a fish, cooked in lemon, garlic and butter, into which the Duke of Somerset cut making a remarkable discovery. By the fates, he declared, holding his knife aloft and stepping backwards, dumbfounded and fit to collapse. I never thought I'd see it again. Algernon rushed about the table, bringing his chair near for his friend, and then he saw it, glinting in the belly of the fish. He pushed his fingers inside, then raised it aloft, the ring he had given Anne, bearing the lion rampant, inlaid in lapis lazuli, bearing the motto, Esperance en Dieu, hope in God. The wizard earl, though sickly, saw the glinting gold and stood, recognising the ring in an instant. Impossible! he roared my mage i stole it from that stupid girl and threw it into the sea you must never marry her never no child of that cripple cecil may wed a child of mine algernon furious replied she is not a child of cecil's father she is a child of heaven with hair as black as a raven's wing and skin as pale as snow and eyes as green as the seas from whence this ring has returned to me. The meal did not continue and Algernon never spoke to his father again. Less than a year later, he married Anne Cecil, who had not aged a day until that point. And the pair bore only daughters, four in fact, and it was as if the years that Past while they were apart, came rushing in on Anne all at once. Of course, Henry Percy died alone, sheltered by the Duke of Somerset at Petworth House, but the old man never saw his granddaughters or came to realise that the same child he'd tried to drown had grown into the woman his son married. Neither did he live to see Algernon welcomed into the Order of the Garter, appointed Lord Admiral of the British fleet, or serve as one of the greatest leaders on Parliament's side during the Civil War. But that was his just deserts. for Henry Percy had tried to defy fate, who is a cruel mistress indeed. And although Algernon Percy loved Anne with all his heart, the time rushed in on her, and her beauty and health faded quickly. She died in 1637, never seeing her children wed. In the wake of her death, Algernon was once again heartbroken. He rebelled against Cromwell, retired to Olnwick and never again returned to the heart of politics. He did marry once more to Elizabeth Howard, daughter of the Earl of Suffolk, but their son, Jocelyn, died without issue and the line of the House of Percy was ended forever. Still, Algernon and Anne are at least united In death. They are buried, side by side, at Petworth, in a crypt in the south chancel of St Mary's Church, as perhaps they were always destined to be.
1: Wide are the wings of a swan, wide and white, as it swoops low over the water and trails rippling droplets behind it. Wide too is my tail, as wide and full as a loving heart, and if you sit a while, I'll tell it to you the way I remember it. I saw a swan that morning, bright as a star streaking across the pale blue morning sky from the little chip of a window in the attic I shared with the other maids. All our days were the same in the summer milking season, steady and predictable as the beat of a heart, so that one stands out in my memory. The buttery in the kitchen were already hot and sticky with chatter and gossip and the smell of baking. It was a lively, happy home, Wolverley Court, although the lady of the house, Mistress Walter, was a silent and lonely woman. She'd never married or had children to fill the court with laughter. Nobody knew why. As I went through the still room and out into the yard to collect my milking pails, I was joined by Solomon the Old Dog. He was a huge wolfhound, long-legged and shaggy, but it was difficult to imagine his days as a hunting dog. Sleepy and sweet-natured, he had been part of the Wolverly family for as long as anybody could remember. He followed after me, wagging his ragged tail, and put his nose into my hand as I walked. The fluffy dawn clouds were clearing away to leave behind a sky as blue as the virgin's gown, and the birds were clamouring for joy. Solomon and I went through the orchard, where clusters of sweet-smelling pear blossom were cascading down the branches. It was too early for our sweet, dark pears yet, but I could see the bumps on the branches where they would grow. There's nothing like that taste, sweet and sharp. There's a sharpness to the sight of those pear trees, too, for we all remembered the men mustering under their spreading leaves when the king called for all able and willing to join his cause. A strange thing happened as I reached the edge of the orchard where it gave way to the wolverly meadows. The herd of placid, short-horned cows had never disturbed old Solomon before, but that day when he saw them he took off running as fast as his rickety legs would carry him. I was surprised because i had never seen him stir his stumps so fast. He liked to follow people and sit quietly by the hearth with his nose on his paws, But here he was running and barking like a young puppy. Well, I followed after him, thinking he'd seen something he wanted to chase at last, which would make a story for the others later. We all loved the dog, but accepted that his hunting days, if they'd ever existed, were over. Solomon stopped suddenly and started sniffing and licking at something in the long grass. I made my way over towards him, thinking that perhaps one of the cows had been injured. We still had wolves in these parts, and it was not unheard of for them to come out of the forest with their bright gold eyes and hungry bellies. Then I screamed, loud as the day of my birth, for a shape rose up in front of me like a ghost. It was a man, but he was all bedraggled, in clothes that were little more than scraps of rag, and with a beard down to his waist. There were chains around his wrists and ankles of heavy, rusted iron. "'Solomon, get away!' I yelled, but the foolish dog was waiting patiently by the ragged man's side, wagging his tail as if he'd found a long-lost friend. That's what Solomon was like. If he saw a fox eating our chickens, he'd nuzzle it and try to get it to play with him. Well, I wasn't about to wait around for the dog to develop a sense of danger. I ran back to the court as fast as my legs would carry me, "'cause I knew for certain there should not be ghastly chained men in the cattle field on an ordinary milking day. "'I made a huge clatter rushing back into the yard, "'which turned out to be an embarrassment to me, "'for Mistress Walter was there, sitting aback her horse and about to set out to ride. "'Whatever is the matter?' said she. "'So between taking breathless gulps of air, for I hadn't run so fast since I was a very little girl,' I told her about the man in the meadow and the dog's reckless behaviour. A couple of the men started for the meadow and I expected that to be the end of it. But to my great surprise, Mistress Walter went as white as the milk in the churn and set her horse off at a canter off in the direction of the meadow herself. I've missed something here, I said to one of the grooms. What in the name of all that's holy is going on? I've no idea, said he with a broad grin. But don't you want to find out? Well, I did want to find out, of course, because not a lot happened most days. This was more excitement than we'd known for months. So we all followed Mistress Walter's horse down to the meadows as fast as we could, and our mouths were soon agape at the scene which greeted us. Mistress Walter and the ragged man were in each other's arms, kissing like young lovers, Despite his forlorn appearance and her unmarried state, they embraced as if they didn't care who saw them, and that was just as well, for we were all standing staring. Solomon the old dog was sitting on the ground beside them, his efforts exhausted for the day, but his tail was beating feebly to show his pleasure. He watched as Mistress Walter reached into the neck of her dress for a little velvet bag which she wore. She opened it and and out a little fragment of gold, like half a moon. As she showed the strange man, he reached into his pocket and pulled out another crescent of gold, just the same. The two halves fit together perfectly, just as if they'd been made to do so, for that's what they were, two pieces of the same gold lover's ring. We none of us knew what to think, but we could only guess that the stranger was someone that our lady had known long, long ago. Mistress Walter sent for the smith, and he came with his tools. While he was about his work striking off the rusty old chains on the stranger's wrists and ankles, we heard the history of his life. It seemed that he had once been betrothed to Mistress Walter, but holy zeal had taken hold of his spirit and he'd gone off on crusade as a soldier of the cross. It was only meant to have been for a little while, and the knight had every intention of returning to marry Mistress Walter while they were both still young. They'd broken their lover's ring in two, and each of them had vowed to keep a half until they should be reunited. Even the inscription carved inside the ring was a sign of their promise to each other. United hearts, death only parts. And would you believe, Solomon the old dog, as faithful if not as wise as his namesake in the Holy Bible, he had belonged to the brave crusader all those years before. He'd been left with Mistress Walter for her to care for while he was away, and she'd cared for him and never married either. But then the crusader's fortunes had changed. After a fierce and bloody battle, as close to hell as a living man should ever have to go, he'd been taken prisoner by the enemy. Rather than kill him, they'd locked him in a dungeon for many years, where he'd never seen the light of the sun and had no way to get a message to his beloved. But his faith had stayed strong, where many men might have become desperate and wanted to give up on everything. He never stopped praying, and one night, an angel appeared before him in shining robes and cast him into a dream. He half awoke to find himself being carried through the air, many miles above the clouds, on the broad feathery back of a huge swan, which flew all across the world to drop him in our meadow. The next thing he'd known was the rough tongue and excited barking of his constant old dog. We all agreed that it had been a miracle of love. No less miraculous was the day of the wedding. "'All of us who lived and worked at the court were there after days of preparation. "'There was a little private chapel attached to the court where we worshipped on Sundays, "'and that was where the ceremony was held. "'We were all invited to see it, "'for Mistress Walter and her knight had no wealthy friends or relatives. "'She looked beautiful as she came into the chapel to marry her crusader, "'with a wreath of pear blossom and hazel leaves on her head. "'She met him where he was waiting at the altar,' bathed in sunlight streaming through the open church door with the old dog sitting behind him beating his tail on the floor the smith had melted down their old promise ring and forged it fresh into two new rings each bore the same inscription but when they exchanged them to make them one at last we all knew that not even death would part them but at the very moment the rings were placed on their fingers a swan came soaring low through the open chapel door and flew right up the aisle, where it landed just between the newly married couple. And the Crusader Knight thanked God in his joy for the wonder which had saved him and brought him back to the woman he'd never stopped loving, even in that dark dungeon on the other side of the world. We feasted long and sang and danced, and it was a marvel to see the gentle white swan lying down in the orchard next to the old dog Solomon, looking for all the world as though they were exchanging words. It stayed for some time until night began to fall, and it flapped its great wings and flew away into the darkening sky. We never saw it again, but Mistress Walter and her knight stayed true to each other until the end of their days, and we always called the meadow the knight's meadow after that, for where I'd found him. I was popular, of course, as a teller of the tale, and I was often called upon to recount how I'd discovered the ragged knight. In time, I was dancing at my own wedding. No swan flew in to grace that day, but I've always smiled whenever I've seen one since then, whether floating on the water or flying overhead. And so my tale's told, and if there's another piece of cheese or a slice of black pear, you can fill my bowl next. and such a lemon